This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Verse 18, it says, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And he begot Enoch, and after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Now, all through history, both secular and religious history, there have been towering figures, men and women who stood out, who made a difference. Uh, think during the last war of Winston Churchill and with his rousing speeches, his inspiring statements in the House of Commons and his courage and decision-making uh, went a long way for Britain winning the war against Nazism. Six years ago, Margaret Thatcher's funeral was held. And whether you agree with her politics or not, it seemed to polarize a lot of people. But there's no question when the Queen comes to your funeral and hundreds of thousands of people are cheering as the cortege pass, you know that you have made a massive impact on British politics. Queen Elizabeth II, or Queen, who went to the throne at just 25 years of age, and she's 93 now. And during those past 68 years, it is reckoned that she has, either publicly or privately, has conducted 34,000 uh, invitations she's taken and conducted those. Can you imagine that? That's about 500 a week for all of those decades that she's been on the throne. What an amazing monarch she really is. And then, of course, when you come into the religious failure of Martin Luther, who undoubtedly, with all of his feelings, undoubtedly uh, changed the whole landscape of religion across the continent of Europe. And then you have the Whitfield and the Wesleys, uh, you think of Wesley brothers, how that God used them mightily in Britain. Whenever France was having revolution, Britain had revival. And they could have had revolution, but instead we had revival because of the influence of these men. You think of the great preachers like C.H. Spurgeon, whose books to this day sells by their millions around the world. 
Billy Graham, who probably spoke to more people face to face than any other man in history preaching the gospel. Think of <laughs> Gladys Aylward, the great missionary, and Amy Carmichael from these shores, and so many people. You think of people in the Bible, the Abrahams, the Moses, the Isaacs, and the, the Daniels, and the Isaiahs, and the Esthers, and the Deborahs, and the Sarahs, and in every generation, there has been someone who has stood up and made a difference in their generation. And Enoch was a man in his generation who made a difference. Although only briefly mentioned in Scripture, but what is recorded about him clearly shows him to be a man of distinction, a standout man in his generation. Now, there's a few scriptures that mentions him. We read there in Genesis chapter 5, but in Hebrews chapter 11, you don't necessarily need to turn to these, but in Hebrews chapter 11, it also gives us a little bit of information here about him as well. Verse 5, Hebrews 11, it says, By faith... Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Hallelujah. And then it goes on to say, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a warder of those who diligently seek him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then in the little letter of Jude, just before Revelation, it tells us a lot of what times were like in those days, in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of Noah, days of Enoch. In verse 5, I can just read a little bit more than I intended, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Sodom, as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a, a reviving accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
That is against God, of course. And so you see in the days that this man lived were terrible, wicked, evil, dark, awful days. Now, there are two distinct genealogical lines that come from Adam. And one of them we just read there in Genesis 5, which is the Sethite line. And the other one is in Genesis 4, 18 to 24. Strangely enough, Genesis 5, 18 to 24 is the other line, isn't it? We just read. And Genesis 4 is the Cainite line. Not the Canaanites, but the Cainite. Cain, you remember, was the one who murdered his brother Abel. And there's a lineage that comes from him. But then Seth, who was born after Abel was murdered, then there's a line comes from Seth, the Sethite line. Now, some of the sons and daughters of these lines, you'll find it has got similar names. For instance, there's an Enoch and a Lamech in both those lines. Uh, in, the, in the line that comes from, uh, from Adam uh, through Cain's side, there's a man called Lamech, and he's the seventh from Adam in the Cain side. But the seventh from Adam on the Seth side is called Enoch. And the ungodly line of Cain produced Lamech, who was a self-confessed murderer, a man of two wives, a man of great <laughs> violence. But the godly line of Seth produced Enoch, who was a righteous man in his generation. Enoch was a man of faith. Lamech was a man of the flesh. One was a man of faith, one was a man of the flesh. And, and that lineage, could you say, spiritually speaking, continues to this day. There are those who are of faith. There are those who mind the things of the Spirit. But then there's those who are of the flesh, and they're only interested in the things of the flesh, the things of themselves, nothing to do with God. And that's the same even to this day. Now, Enoch lived before the flood. In those days, the earth was somewhat different to what it is today. The flood changed a lot of things. Uh, you know, climatically, things have been changed since the flood. Uh, geology has been changed since the flood. Geography has been changed since the flood. The Bible says the fountains of the deep were broken up. And it says the water was covered the very tallest of the mountains. And so no wonder the very earth was changed geographically and geologically because of that and climatically because of all of that there. But that's another subject. But it happened, and it is to this very day. There was no confusion of languages uh, because this was way before the Tower of Babel. And men lived much longer. Uh, for instance, Adam lived 930 years. Seth lived 912 years. Lamech was 777 years. Uh, Enoch's son, Methuselah, lived the longest. He was 969 years. Uh, Enoch's dad, Jared, was 962 years. And yet Enoch was only 365 years. So he lived relatively, <laughs> it was a relatively short life, you know, and considering his peers. And that's the way it was in those days. But something happened to Enoch when he was 65 years old. We don't know what he was like before he was 65. He maybe just lived a normal, everyday life. But something happened to him, and we're not sure how it happened. But when he was 65, he had an encounter with God. And from that moment onwards, he was an entirely different man. God really got a hold of this man, and he became a preacher of righteousness, a prophet, if you will, a man who spoke to his generation. And it seems to coincide with his son, Methuselah, because 
whenever he was 65, that's when he had his son uh, Methuselah. And, and the name, we're not exactly, totally, completely, and utterly sure what his name means. There's been some arguments about it. Some say it, think it means man of the javelin or man of the sending forth, uh, suggesting there was a judgment that was coming that would be like a spear or a javelin that would come sent forth. But most think, however, most believe that his name means when he goes, it will come. When he goes, Methuselah is, when he goes, it will come, and the it being the judgment of God. Now, Enoch didn't know what the judgment of God was going to be. We know because we have read the end of the story, and we know it was going to be the flood under Noah. But actually, and it's not a coincidence, but the very year that Methuselah died, that's the very year the flood came. And so that <coughs> makes us believe that his name actually meant when he goes, it will come. And that is precisely what happened. And so even though he only lived to be 365 and he preached for 300 years and he preached righteousness and he preached judgment to come and he preached that, that ungodly world that he lived in that judgment was coming that God being gracious and long suffering and of tender mercies gave them another 669 years to repent but they didn't do that did they and in the end the flood came and swept them all away and so Enoch, who was a great-grandson, or Noah was a great-grandson of Enoch, uh, he lived in an ungodly world, but he was a godly man. It's not easy to live godly in an ungodly world. It's not easy to live godly in an ungodly environment. And some of you work and live in an ungodly environment. And you face it every day. And it can't be easy at times to do that. But here's a man who did it. And he did it for 300 years. <laughs> and he was preaching and prophesying and warning. And they probably thought he was an idiot. And they probably laughed at him. And they probably thought he was just an old fool. But he wasn't. He was the one who was right all along. And it says, Enoch walked with God. Think about that for a moment. He walked with God. Out of all the millions of people that lived on the earth at that time, and there were literally millions, God could only find one man who wanted to walk with him daily. For 300 years, every day from he was 65 until the day he died, he walked with God. That tells us that he had an intimate, personal relationship with God. And he was the only one. None of the rest of them were doing it. He was the only one. So whatever the encounter he had with God, it was life-changing. If we have an encounter with Christ, it has to be life-changing. If our lives have not changed and we profess to be a believer in Christ, and our life hasn't changed, then we need to question. We need to ask ourselves, is this real? Have I actually repented and come to Christ? Because if my life hasn't changed, the signs are, it hasn't happened. But it happened with this man. And his life radically changed, and he stood up. 
Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? And the moment you and I agreed with God and agreed with God's word and agreed with the gospel of Christ, whenever we agreed with that and accepted that, then our lives began to change from that moment onwards. And so here was a man for 300 years. He was faithful. He was consistent. He was disciplined. He was dedicated. And remember, he was walking in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who had no desire for God, who could care less about God. In fact, he did everything ungodly they could think of. And yet this man walked with God. And sometimes, and in fact, I think today, increasingly, you and I are going to be called to walk with God in a world that's flying in the face of God, that is no time for God, that will ridicule you, that will maybe laugh at you, that will maybe slag you off, that will try to make you feel foolish. And it takes courage in the face of all that to maintain a consistent, faithful walk with God. This man did it. And if he did it, and Noah did it, and Elijah did it, and Paul did it, then we can do it too. Elijah was a man of like passions, it says, just as we are. But he was able to walk faithfully before God. Paul in Ephesians tells us how to walk in this Christian life. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Walk worthily. Walk worthily. Because we serve a great God. And we know a great Christ. So we should walk worthily. Walking seriously. Verse 17, chapter 4, walk differently. It's okay to be different. You know, the world wants to be different, don't they? You know, there's, there's, there's certain groups of people who dress differently and act differently because they want to be different. They want to stand out. Sometimes I, I see people walking down the street and, and, you know, I have trouble with colors, but I've seen a couple of folk recently and I, I've never seen hair like it in my life. I, honestly, I don't know what color it was. It was crazy. But that person wanted to be different. They wanted to stand out from the crowd. Maybe they have a lack. Maybe they feel something that, that they need to do that. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I, there's probably a good reason for it, but there you have it. But why shouldn't Christians be different? I don't mean in their dress, but why shouldn't Christians be different? We are different. And the worst thing you can do as a believer is just try to mix in with everybody else to be a comedian. You know, well, I'll just pass myself. Here, that will, I'll, I'll just pass myself. I don't want to stand out because I don't want people to, to think I'm a, a holy roller. <laughs> well, we should be different. If we're ever going to affect the world, it's not because we're going to be like them, it's because we're going to be different than them. That's right. So we need to walk differently. It says walk in love, chapter 5, 1 and 2. Walk in love. By this you shall know, all oh men, that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So we're to walk in love. Walk as children as light, chapter 5, 8. We're no longer in the darkness, we're in the light. We used to walk in darkness. We didn't know we were walking in darkness, but we were. But when you come into the light, then you see how much you did walk in darkness then. Walk circumspectly. That means carefully, wisely, diligently. Why? Because the world watches us. And you know the world watches you, don't they? Because just do one thing wrong and they'll just 
be all over you like a rash, wouldn't they? Because they're just waiting to see. So we're to walk circumspectly. If you go into almost any Jewish synagogue, you'll see Hebrew writing above where the, the Torah scrolls are. There's a little place where they keep the scrolls. And above that in Hebrew writing is, know whom before you stand. Know whom before you stand. In other words, recognize God and walk right before him and circumspectly know him before you stand. And that should apply to us too. And then chapter 2, verse 10, he says, walk in good works, what God has prepared beforehand for us. And so we can walk with God, even this is, a, <laughs> even this is an evil world, and even it's a wicked world, and it's getting worse. But we can walk with God in the midst of it all. And he expects us to walk with him. Enoch witnessed for God. He witnessed for God. He was salt in a corrupt world. His preaching and prophesying was a testimony to an ungodly world. He was light in a dark world. It's interesting that Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only links Enoch's prophecy to the judgment that came with the flood in that generation of old, but he actually links it also to the judgment that will yet come when Christ returns. He links it to both of those things. So whenever Enoch was preaching and prophesying and telling about judgment to come, even though he didn't know what the judgment was, and even though it came hundreds of years after he died, but the flood, that was one judgment but there's another judgment to come and Peter talks about it in 2 Peter and he says the world one day will be burnt up by fire. He says the heavens are stored with fire waiting for that day. So the world one day will be cleansed again, not with the flood, but with fire. And Jude, he links those two together. And so he was a man before his time. He was a man who spoke the word of God, even though he couldn't see it happening, and even though it looked as if there was no results for his preaching, but yet God was using him to warn and to warn and to warn. In Luke chapter 17, it tells us here somewhat of what things will be like. Jesus speaking in verse 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. But as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. <coughs> Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." So Jesus said that before he comes, the world will go on as if nothing's going to happen, as if there will be no judgment to come. 
as if everything will be the same as it always was. But he's warning, he says, but judgment will come. It surely will come. Even though when you look around us, it's the same as it always was. I mean, it's like what it is in Lot's day. It's like what it is in Noah's day today. It's no different. But he will come. And he will come suddenly. Very suddenly. And so Enoch walked with God. Enoch witnessed for God. Enoch was well-pleasing to God. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What a testimony that he pleased God. If you had a choice for somebody to put something on your gravestone, I don't think you could pick anything better than that, that he or she pleased God. Of course, we'd need to be pleasing God to put that on it, wouldn't we? Whenever Jesus was being baptized by John and the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit as a dove descended upon Christ and the Father spoke and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we wouldn't expect him to say anything less than that because he was well pleased with his Son and his Son was well pleasing to him. He did everything that was right. He did everything that he was asked to do. He did everything that the Father wanted. He was well-pleasing to the Father. And the Father verbally spoke that to those who were there. But that's the Son of God. But here is a mere man. Here is a mere man. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was your testimony and my testimony? at the end of our lives, that we could say God was pleased with it? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord? It's a big ask, isn't it? It's a big ask. But Noah pleased God. There are two types of people that can never please God. Those who have no faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Unless we exercise faith to believe God, we could never please him. Secondly, those who live in the flesh... So then, Romans 8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What does it mean to live in the flesh? Those who live for themselves. Those who live for their own ambitions. Those who live, who want nothing to do with God. It's them. It's their life. It's their goals. It's their vision. It's their drive. It's them, them, them. They're living totally for the flesh, for their own impulses. They cannot please God. But as soon as we exercise even faith as a grain of mustard seed, it pleases the heart of God. Children, tonight, listen to me. All right? Here's how you can please God. All right? You listening? All right? <coughs> Colossians 3.20. You should mark it in your Bible. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Right? 
So every time you do what mommy and daddy tells you, provided it's good and it's right, and they will, every time you obey them, it pleases the Lord. He hears and sees that, and it's well-pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5 and 9, Paul says, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. We make it our aim. We're trying to be pleasing to the Lord, to live a life that we feel that God would be pleased with. Hebrews 13, 20, 21, Christ works in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Now, isn't that strange? Christ works in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Well, it's not really strange because we do that work children, don't we? We try to put into them the right things to be mannerly, to be truthful, you know, to be good, to be honorable in all things. And if they do that, it pleases us. We're pleased with that. And we put that into them and it pleases us. So Christ puts into us the things that pleases him. And if we allow him to put those things in us, then he'll be pleased with us. That's what Paul's saying. Well, the writer to the Hebrews. Colossians 1 and 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, who were a wonderful church and who time and time again blessed him materially because he had great needs. Uh, and so from time to time, they sent them help to bless him. And here's what he said about the Philippian church. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Every time they gave to him and his ministry, it was a sweet aroma that was acceptable to God. It was a wonderful sacrifice. And every time you give sacrificially to someone or to something, it pleases the heart of God. He's well pleased with that. And what we try to do in this church over the years, and we've been diligent in this, is try to be faithful in blessing missions and other ministries. Not to keep everything for ourselves, but to give away from ourselves. And I tell you what, it pleases the heart of God. He's pleased with that. He loves that when we do that, and we do do it. And individually in our own lives, that's what we should do also. And then, as we're beginning to wind up, Enoch, it tells us, was translated by God. Hebrews 11 and 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. I love the way it says it in Genesis 5.24. It's very understated. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I wonder how that happened. I wonder, did Enoch get up one morning while he was eating his porridge, or his Quaker oats, and suddenly he was gone? I wonder, was he out in the field one day or walking down the road, I wonder he's in the middle of preaching and suddenly he was gone. He was gone. He was not. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he was gone. Of all the billions of people that has ever lived upon the face of this earth, there's only two people, only two, 
that went to heaven without dying. Not even Jesus went to heaven without dying. Only two. Enoch and Elijah. Elijah, do you remember Elisha, his understudy was following him because everybody knew he was going that day. Didn't know exactly when, but they knew it was that day. So he followed because he wanted a double blessing. And he followed him, followed him. And suddenly, suddenly, fiery chariots and horses came and divided the two of them. And then he was caught up in a whirlwind up into heaven before his eyes. Only two people went to heaven without dying. And Enoch was one of them. It says he was not. Eight times it's recorded in Genesis 5 of Adam's sons, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, but not Enoch. There's no obituary for Enoch. There was no grave dug for Enoch. There was no notice in the paper for Enoch. Enoch was not, for God took him. When it says God took him, it's in the same sense of the word that means to be caught up. Supernatural. Caught up. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Those of you who've been here a long time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a great resurrection chapter. Verse 50. Now I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, or that's to sleep, that's die. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling, in the automos, and the atom of time. Not even a blink or a wink, but a twinkling. <laughs> you know, for those of you who maybe watch athletics and sports or F1 and all that stuff, you'll see that the timing is to the hundreds of a second or sometimes to the thousands of a second. That doesn't even come close to this in an atom of time. Gone. Instantly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul amplifies this a little bit because the church at Thessalonica was concerned because Paul was preaching about the second coming. You know, the reckon that this is the first letters that Paul wrote was first, second Thessalonians. And the first letters he wrote was about last things. Last things was a big, big thing with Paul. It should be a big thing with us. 
And so they were concerned, well, what about those who's already died, about those who's fallen asleep in Christ? What's going to happen to them? So he said in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ and Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself we descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. I say unreservedly and unashamedly, I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe in that totally. And Paul says we shall be caught up, we shall be snatched away in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, <laughs> quicker than a blink or a wink. We shall be gone. Glory to God. Gone where? Gone to be with the Lord. Glory to God. And if somebody says, you may be looking for the undertaker, we're looking for the upper taker. But whatever comes, we're ready for the undertaker if it comes, but we'd rather have the uppertaker. We'd rather have him if he comes first for us. Amen. Now, let me close with this, Christopher. All right? Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation 11, there was two called the two witnesses. This is during the period called the Great Tribulation, the rule of Antichrist. And the second three and a half years, things is really, really, really bad on earth. And God sends, as a judgment to the earth, these two witnesses, and he gave them supernatural power so that those who came against them, they could... Like dragons, they could have fire coming forth from their mouth to burn them up. They could call for drought that it wouldn't rain. They could turn the water into blood, the rivers into blood. And they would do this. And the world hated them, despised them, and were scared of them. And to the world, they were a plague on the earth. But then as you begin to read into chapter 11, and God allowed this to happen, you see that the Antichrist forces, God allowed them to kill these two witnesses. And they lay on the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. They wouldn't bury them. And the whole world rejoiced and they sent each other presents because finally, finally, they've got rid of this plague of these two witnesses. But then, after three and a half days, God supernaturally raises them up before their very eyes. And the whole world saw it. Do you know this is the only generation? This is the only generation where this could happen. Whenever this was written 2,000 years ago, that couldn't have happened. The whole world couldn't have saw anything. 
But because of the advent of satellite television, the whole world sees everything. If there's a bombing in London or New York or Paris, wherever, within seconds, it's beamed all over the world. And I have no doubt that the two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. The two men who brought judgment in their day to whether to the word or to kings. And here they are, the only two that were taken to heaven that never died. And yet all men will die someday. And here's their day. It is appointed unto man wants to die. So right there in the streets of Jerusalem, they died, and for three and a half days they were left until God then supernaturally raised them up and took them into the glory to the eyes of a watching world. And it says that some, when it happened, verse 5, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them, and the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. Huh. It put the fear of God in them, at least for a while. It's amazing how the fear of God comes into people for a while when a tragedy happens. Whenever the Twin Towers in New York was struck, let me tell you, the fear of God came on that city. The churches couldn't hold the people. But it didn't last. It didn't last. And it melted away after a while. Here is a godly man in an ungodly world. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Can you and I, can we be Enoch's in our generation? Can we be the Enoch in our office or our classroom or a factory floor or in our community or in our school or our university? Can we be the Enoch? Can we be the one who will stand and be faithful in spite of what the world is saying around us? Can we be the ones who will stand tall and make a difference? Can we be stand-out people in our generation? In our family circle, you may be the only one that's saved in your whole family. Somebody has to be first anyway. My wife was first in her family. Somebody has to be first. But if you stand and you take your stand and trust God, the chances are that one by one by one by one will come because you have taken your stand. And so here's Enoch, a godly man in an ungodly world. And by the grace of God and by the strength of the Lord, he was able to stand, and he was able to stand and take it for God's sake. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you have given us in this generation an opportunity to be faithful, to be standout people, to be different than those around us, different because of your grace in our lives, different because, Lord, you have changed us, not different because of who we are, but different because of who you are in us and through us. So we pray, Lord, no matter what age we are in this room tonight, young or old alike, that we can make a difference to those around us, to our social circle, 
to within our community, to within our workplace, to within this nation. So help us, Lord, to be stand-up people for God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.